and happy holidays from the three little sisters. We're recording this a little bit early. It is November 18th, but we're recording our December podcast now because I am heading to Hawaii on December 21st, so I am getting this out of the way now. And I'm sure my other partners are uh, super excited <laughs> for me hitting the uh, hot temperatures of Hawaii. Yeah, I'm going to be like already four feet of snow as of October 31st because I live in the boonies of Bush, northern mm. Ontario. Thank you. Yeah, the snow. Yeah, the snow cats. But uh, as we think about the holidays, uh, the Nevermore podcast is focused on the mission of books and the joy of reading that we love to do around this holiday season. We love books for kids, and one of our missions is to provide books that not only educate and inspire, but delight and entertain. Our entire children's line is exactly the type of thing that does that. We incorporate illustrations that delight and entertain children, but also provide a lot of educational content. It is absolutely imperative that you read to your children, especially when they are age five and under, because reading to them at a young age provides them vital literacy and language skills. But that doesn't mean that reading has to stop there. Reading can bring families together, especially around the holiday season. There is nothing like sitting together by a warm uh, roasting fire and reading things like The Night Before Christmas or Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or many of the other uh, stories that we all love to share. So with that in mind, we're going to be discussing some of the topics of the holiday themes, how to incorporate these in writing, and sort of the influences of early writers like Dickens. So on the program today, we have our lovely partners again, Sarah Strickland, our creative director, and Shiel Mulan Barubi, our executive coordinator. Welcome again, ladies, to the program. Hello. Hi. So today on the program, we're going to be discussing again holiday themes. So tell me, guys, what do you love about the holiday season? We know that there's a lot of holidays going on in December. It's not just Christmas. We have things like Diwali, like uh, Hanukkah, like Kwanzaa. And uh, especially for some of us here who are full out and about pagans and heathens, we have Yule. So what are some of the holidays that are, what are some of the things that you guys like to do uh, getting close to the holiday season? I'll go ahead, Shiel. Oh, you're going to let me go first. I yeah, was I like, am. trying not to butt in for a change. <laughs> uh, I was going to let her go first. Uh, for us, there's this little thing that uh, another neighbor had uh, done it to us a few years back and it's my favorite thing to do uh, and every year we make it a point to try and do it we'll pick a couple of neighbors on the road and we'll elf them we got elfed by uh, a very sweet neighbor a couple of doors down when I was still living on the other side of town and what you do is you take things like packets of hot chocolates and candy canes and candies and you know appropriate foods that you know wouldn't you know, in this day and age there's a lot of allergies myself included allergic to a few things so I get it right so you take things that you know you know aren't going to cause a reaction and you stuff them in a nice little box you put a ribbon on it and a little tag that says you just got elfed and a whole poem is dedicated to that and now they've got to go elf a whole bunch of people and it just oh kind of spreads through the huge. whole neighborhood. And then you're seeing little elf boxes on everybody's front door. So we'd make it a point to try and do that every year. Oh, that sounds awesome. 
No, it my is. favorite my favorite thing to do, um, you know, with a with a whole family. Um, it's been a tradition ever since I was a little kid. You know, you go out, you drive around, look at the, all the Christmas lights. Um, we have certain certain towns here that'll do a big Christmas lantern thing, and you can walk all through there, and the shops are all set up. So we try to do that every year, and it's just it's just kind of a fun thing, you know. We bake cookies every year, even though it always kind of turns out bad, but we still do it. So yeah, just the act of doing that with your whole yeah, family. even though you know the cookies are usually not, not edible. Turn out well, <laughs> you know, because me baking, I get frustrated. I hate uh -huh. the wait times, and my kids are giggling at me because I'm like grumbling, and then the husband's like, "Well, come on, you know." And Christmas for me, Christmas time around that year, I've always kind of been a blasé kind of person. I don't particularly care for the holidays, um, but you know. Uh, the last few years actually haven't been too bad. So it's those little things that actually make it better. Mm -hmm. Cheat and do the Pillsbury place and bake. I'm just saying. It it may not be, you know, from scratch, but it's still cookies. And they taste really good. And That's they true. Santa like, Clauses turn out like Santa Clauses and not some big yeah. blob. And, and but then my kid doesn't get to trash the kitchen with flour and whatnot. So. <laughs> well, That's true. That's true. <laughs> They can still do that. I mean, they can make like one gigantic like Santa cookie. Just like, oh yeah. Do that, you know. Um, my favorite thing, like I didn't grow up with the holidays uh, either. For heathen or non-heathen, I didn't have Christmas. I didn't have Yule. I didn't actually have anything. So for me, this is all new, and I didn't even have these until I was twenty-one. Uh, but my favorite thing to do these days, um, and it, it's not really sort of like a happy thing, but it's still my favorite thing to do, is on the twenty-first for us heathens is Mother's Night. And on Mother's Night, we gather around the table and we honor all the mothers that have come before us. And I lost my mom about um, now four years ago and my other mother. Um, and so we put their pictures around a bowl with all of our grandmothers and we come and give them pennies. We give them a penny for the future, a penny for the past, and a penny for the present. And we make wishes to them. And we give them little bits of food, and we tell them how much we love them. And that's, like, my favorite thing to do because it makes them, like, part of our current celebration and tells them how much we care and love them. And so it's, like, my favorite thing to do. And we've done it for, like, I think, like, five or six years now. And I love doing it over Christmas. It makes me feel like I have my mom here mm -hmm. and that she's still part of my Christmas celebration. So I still really love doing that, even though it's a little bit sad. I'm kind of kind of miss doing that this year because I'll be well, in Hawaii. <laughs> a little miss uh, is yeah. going to Hawaii. Yeah. Um, Just keep rubbing it be, in. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Mother's Night will be like sitting, you know, at a fire pit somewhere and probably have. Well, my mom will still be there. Okay, somebody heart, mute so. her because. Uh... <laughs> Unfortunately, you can only mute yourself. Dang um, it. I'm going to hit the mute button so I can go curse in the corner. You're right. Hear me while I go me. cry. In my in, in my heart, I'll bring you with me. <laughs> you know, it's okay. still you know, I, I still love doing like the exactly the same thing that you guys do too. Uh, we drive around, we look at lights, we make hot chocolate, we wreck the kitchen with flour, we give things to neighbors. We usually try to find um, families that are in need. Uh, most of the schools around here do this thing called the Giving Tree, 
And so you take a family name off of the giving tree and you go out and buy their wish list. And sometimes it's just little things like they ask for mittens or socks or, you know, like one year this lady asked for a frying pan. And my daughter got kind of super ambitious last year and took like six names off the giving Ooh. tree. So <laughs> that we, is your daughter, though. Uh-huh. Just like her mother. <laughs> so we, we kind of went out of our way to like, and we got this card in the mail and it was from the family. And they wrote to us and they were like, we, we hope it's okay. We got your name from the, the charity. And they just said they couldn't, you know, be more thankful to how generous we were. And I, it just made my heart melt because we, we just didn't even want thanks. We did it because we wanted them to have a good holiday and we wanted to give. And we do that every year. We try to find, like, people we can give to or donate to. We do at least one or two toy charities because we know that uh, not every family has uh, the money to to uh, afford gifts. Mm-hmm. And so giving is a really big part of our family experience, and we try to give as much as we can. Here we have these things called blessing boxes, and they're set up kind of throughout the community, and you can put food in them. You can put scarves, hats all that stuff. So um, every year around this time, we try to find a couple of the blessing boxes and throw some stuff in there. Well, that's really cool. So yeah. well, you know, Our town has charity something charity similar as well. They have, uh, between the food bank and Salvation Army, they have a Christmas hamper and the um, families that have the more difficulty during this time financially can sign up on three of the days in November and they just, it, it's amazing. It's amazing how much people donate to this thing every year. It's like heaps and heaps of food and monetary donations, gift cards, uh, full on stockings, toys for the kids, clothes, you name it, they've donated it. And some of our schools do the same thing too. So some of the families that are finding it rough end up getting doubled up. So it's an amazing time for our community in Elliott Lake. They just, they're so giving here. Yeah, we actually got told around here that they've um, stopped accepting donations because they actually have too many. So, I mean, that's really nice. And I I actually wish that some of these charities would extend to be all year round because it's really nice for the holidays. And that's great because I know that that's when families feel the most pinch is when the big holidays come around. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure that those those food donations, those clothing donations could be there all year just to help that little bit extra. And I've been there. I think all the three of us have been there. We've had to use food banks and it does not make you feel good as a human being. It's really difficult to go in a food bank. It's really difficult to be in need. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why it means so much to me to always give back because I know what that was like to be looked at as being quote poor and it's a horrible feeling inside and it's nothing to do with you it's not your fault it's nothing you're doing you're not a bad human being and i think that people have to stop looking at charity as being uh, such a bad horrible word these things are needed and some communities and some families really need them year-round That brings me to a point, and I know it's not really holiday specific, but as as far back as I can remember, I've always been the type of person who would see a homeless person on the street, even back in Montreal in college. 
I remember the one time this young boy, and you could tell he was young. He had no shoes, dirty head from toe. Um, and I dropped a $50 bill in his lap. That day I didn't eat lunch, but he had a pair of shoes and he ate for the next three meals. That's the kind of Christmas, kind of behavior I like to see around Christmas, but all year round as well. Right. I mean, that's the kind of giving that, you know, you can teach your children and the next generation and the next generation, not just around Christmas time, but all year round. Because mm -hmm. giving doesn't just happen at the holidays. <laughs> right, right. And I think that that's an important message to kind of, you know, play out there is if you can give, give and, you know, don't hold back giving because I don't think that there's a point where you can quote give too much. You know, giving is an important thing to teach. And it's, imp it's an important thing to pass on to children. Um, giving from the heart means a lot. And it doesn't really matter what you buy. Kids, it, they don't really care. It, giving from the heart matters more than the really fancy, shiny new toy. Because in two minutes, they're going to forget about that. They're not mm -hmm. going to remember if they're your you know, the really fancy her robot that, that you bought them. The box. The box. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So don't, you know, don't feel like you're obligated to always get everything on that wish list. Uh, so how important do you think, when it comes to writing, how important do you think holiday themes are? Because, I mean, when you're out there shopping, I mean, there must be a gazillion, billion, million, like, Christmas books. I, I mean, I sometimes feel like every possible holiday theme has been covered. I mean, how many reindeer books do we need? But, I mean, there, there must be other themes you could kind of, like, squeeze in there that are not covered christmas themes uh, oh, or uh, holiday themes in general holiday, like, you think, you, well you can't really say christmas alone right because again there's no. kwanzaa there's diwali there's exactly well, that's what I, I mean when you're out there yeah. over like i'm just using christmas like in uh, generalized quotes, term. <laughs> so am i i'm using it as a generalized term right the holidays um but when you go out there right now and you're shopping right all you see uh, on the shelves everywhere are like you know santa does his laundry and like mrs claus <laughs> goes out and builds a workshop or something and like it feels like there are uh, there must be like a million and one uh, books i want to roll Santa. back to the old times where it was krampus and zit peter and or as you call him or know him as black peter I want some of the horror side of it that they used to have in the Victorian times. We need to go back to that. Yeah. My yeah. daughter, uh, her favorite thing every year now is to watch Krampus. Like, she thinks that was just the greatest movie. That's like her, that's like her favorite Christmas movie. Is that's my favorite she, Christmas movie. Yeah, she absolutely loves, like, the horror aspect of a holiday movie. It's like people who watch Die Hard for Christmas. Yeah. Like Oh, it's Die Hard a Christmas movie. It's totally <laughs> a Christmas movie, dang it. <laughs> That's me. I'm a horror Christmas person. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I agree. Like, I think that we have lost our old school, like, um, connection to kind of like the ghost story, stories, the horror themes that are there. Scaring the and crowd think, out of our family members, especially the yeah. ones of small persuasion. <laughs> exactly and there's some ones like in the especially for those of us who are heathen that we should know and um there's one about the yule cat so there's this giant gigantic cat and it's said to be that he is as big as a house and he prowls around and what he does is he eats children who are not industrious so if you have been naughty um 
you will not find anything that was made from wool in your stocking. And beware, beware, because the Yule Cat comes a-knocking, and he prowls into the house at night, and you'll hear him clawing at your door, and he comes comes in and eats you from your toes to your head. And that's what he does to children who are naughty and do not do their work. So in some countries, they actually put um, hand-knit items into stockings to signify that the children have been actually good and decent and are not going to get eaten by this gigantic Yule cat. So <laughs> and that there rolls are, in to the theme of Black Peter, who is literally the anti-Santa. And yeah, it's the same idea with yeah. birch bundles. You'll get a mm -hmm. with a birch bundle or a piece of coal from Black Peter instead of nice gifts from Santa if you're, you know, you're, you're misbehaved. And the same idea with Krampus. Um, some depictions of Krampus are that he's got a birch stick that he beats children with for being bad. And then he sticks them in his cage or his sack for later for either drowning or consumption. You know, these two are two different entities that hang around with Santa Claus for all the naughty children. And Santa Claus is all for the, the well-behaved children. Yeah, there's even like the Yule Lads, um, again, a heathen tradition that they're not, they're not necessarily evil, but they're kind of like naughty and they get into trouble. Um, they can turn your milk sour. They can upset your goats. They can mess Break up your house. Your yeah, <laughs> they, they kind of like upset your world if you don't leave out offerings. And a lot of heathen homes leave out porridge and milk for the Yule Lads. So there's a lot of traditions that kind of like harken back to these days where uh, the holidays were not always um, honored as being bright and merry, but had sort of a, a light and dark meaning. And there's a reason for that. And because winter was considered to be a very dangerous survival period because you were on your last things. Uh, your food was at its last, your heat was at its last, and you had to survive a very dark, cold, uh, very foreboding landscape. And so Christmas or the wintertime festivals were a time in which you would come together as a community to bring together warmth, food, celebration, and music to kind of like pass the time to celebrate um, and kind of like bring warmth and light and fire as a way to break these somewhat depressing times. Uh, for people who live in the northern climate, uh, December, like November through December through January through February, it gets very dark. There's very little sunlight. And so any amount of light becomes important. And that's why we get the idea of the lit tree, because putting uh, fire or lights on a tree would provide you with the idea that light is going to come back. It's not going to disappear forever. And for those people who are fans of Terry Pratchett and the movie The Hogfather, this theme is very present. And that actually does um, connect with a very old mythology based on the same idea that the sun would not rise again unless a sacrificial victim was given and then the sun would rise again. So there are themes that are related to that throughout the months of November and December that are related to every single winter festival that we have. There's the idea of death connected with light, connected with sun, connected with celebration. And that's all through woven through this month.
And so you did see a lot of that as you look to the various themes that we see, uh, like the red berries on the Christmas tree, <laughs> like the mistletoe, like the, um, especially the lights on the I Christmas tree. I find mistletoe actually quite um, ironic. If you ask me, considering that mistletoe consumed is a poison and can kill mm -hmm. you, and you dangle it over someone's head to give a, get a kiss, yeah. sometimes that kiss can kill you too. Like, I'm not sure if I like you, if I want to kill you, but uh, let's be fair. <laughs> yeah, and I don't really know what the origin of why it's being used as um, dangling over the heads to kiss. I, I don't really know why that became a thing. Uh, myth mythologically, mistletoe has some very weird origins um, in that it was the plant that was forgotten about when Frigga was running around the world asking for everybody to watch out for Balder, and she forgot to ask the mistletoe. So it was used to kill Balder. And uh, there's things like that. I, and I think mistletoe was used in a few other myths to like kill gods or used as poison. Uh, yeah, and, so and then wasn't it sacred to the druids? It is. I believe it was. Yeah, it was very. It's been used as like a poison and also as a sacred plant. Yeah. So I'm not sure how it links to like fertility and kissing. Yeah, <laughs> like it links. Kind of a stretch. It's in ancient Greece where that tradition started, during festivals of Saturnalia, hmm. uh, and later in marriage ceremonies because the plant is, like you said, associated with fertility. Uh, during the Roman era, it was enemies at war would reconcile their differences under the mistletoe. So I guess it's not so much my ironic comment about kisses can kill you like mistletoe can. It's more of a representation of peace. Hmm. Maybe you're asking for peace with that kiss. Uh, yeah, I can see that. So like, kind of like if, if military agreements were made under a certain type of herb, it would kind of make sense if marital agreements were, because yeah. those were considered to be formalized. Agreements. And I'm betting that's that. where the kiss the bride, you may kiss your bride, comes from, too, is that earlier tradition of kissing under the mistletoe. Actually, do you know where that came from? That's that's a really weird thing. So the, the reason, the, the kiss the bride thing, the reason the whole veil, the kissing, and all that junk came from is because back in the day, women used to sometimes be switched during the bridal ceremony. So sometimes men would make arrangements to marry one of a sister. And the father would decide at the last minute that, no, I don't want that daughter to go. I'm going to give him this one and switch them. So he would put her in the bridal gown with the veil and everything. And when he would say, I do, and lift the veil, it was too late. So he had to accept her as his wife, even if oh, he didn't want to marry her. Well, that is so, terrible. Yeah. So that's where the whole veil and everything came from. That's crazy. So, so now the whole tradition of raising the veil before you say I do was added later on. So now you raise the veil to make sure that that is the woman that you've agreed to oh, before you get married to the wrong one. And that's us going on our little tangent. Uh, yeah, I just us. thought it was kind of a weird, interesting. But, yeah. Um, so, now that we're kind of, like, back onto our holiday themes, but uh, when we talk about, like, quote, air quote, Christmas in general, the one that we know now, with all of its tree and lights and sparkling carols everywhere, this one that we see today, uh, that everyone kind of most notably sees out there, 
uh, actually comes from the Victorian era. I know everyone thinks that this is modern and like we just invented this yesterday, but uh, the one that you see at the mall with the big gigantic trees and the lights and the music and the mall Santa oh, and, and the all infernal that. glass balls <laughs> that you break like six bazillion of them every year mm-hmm. and have to replace the next year. Yeah, th- this is all entirely an invention of Victorians. So Victorians were obsessed with Christmas. Um, they loved Christmas so much that they in- entirely made an, an industry out of it. Um, they were the ones that decided that the stores would be decorated for Christmas, um, that uh, there would be entire um, market squares totally dedicated to Christmas. There would be Christmas carolers. There would be um, people dressed up as Santa. And there would be gift exchanges. So the Christmas that you know today is very heavily influenced by the Victorian era. But there are some other origins that come from much, much earlier. And some of the origins about, you know, the Christmas tree itself comes from ancient Norse. And the Christmas tree was most notably chosen because of the fact that it stays green uh, throughout the season. And that's why most of the time it is a evergreen or sometimes um, a pine but most of the time it is an evergreen pine and that is because evergreen pines usually generally if you keep them in water can actually stay green uh, for quite some time up to about six to eight months and they are very hardy trees and they were chosen for that reason and there's some other Christmas origins too. So I'm going to go around the to the uh, the girls here and ask them if they know some of the other Christmas origins. Does anyone know where the origins of the lights on the Christmas tree come from? You've got me. Uh, nope. Really, neither one of you know that that actually is also a pagan tradition because they were initially torches that were put on the outside of the tree and somehow the tree was never set on fire interesting what about the uh christmas uh carols does anyone know where the first christmas carols were actually from or first christmas music let's say that i do not uh, oh sarah you I'm... must you're a heathen you should know i i i know i'm such a bad heathen i don't know <laughs> I know the well, Christmas wreath has pagan origins, but... Uh, I'm pretty sure well, like, all of them have, all the traditions have some sort of pagan origin Oh, I'm sure they all do, yeah. It. So basically you're answering my question right now. So uh, all the origins <laughs> of Christmas have some sort of what origin? Pagan! <laughs> pagan. Right, so, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, sorry out there, Christians. Uh, you guys have Christmas, that is true, because Christ Mass is about the Mass that was given uh, on the birth of Jesus, which just happens to be decided upon by the church to be December 25th. But the Winter Festival, as we know it as heathens and pagans, starts on December 21st. And the reason that it starts on December 21st is because on December 20th is the Winter Festival. And that is when the nights become a little bit shorter and a little bit darker, and our holiday festivals begin. So normally we begin on mother's night and it continues until around january anywhere from january 3rd to 7th depending on if you are also french canadian you will sometimes go to the 8th of january 
because it extends past. Um, there's some, a little bit of Catholicism mixed in there with French Canadians, but they go past January 8th because there's a Catholic festival that ends around, I think it's like the 6th or 7th of January, right, Sheila? Uh, like I a... believe, yeah, around the 6th or 7th. And yes, that is exactly why French Canadians or, uh, you know, we go past to January 8th. Yeah, so they're generally speaking, sometime around there, and some heathens will respectfully go until the eighth or ninth of January because we just love Yule so much. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, our our winter festivals are are many and broad, and they include many uh, many things. But that doesn't mean we all can't get along because all of us enjoy the season so much. And when we talk about the holidays, it is really about coming together and actually bringing all of these traditions together in one place. Actually, shows our humanity. When we think about the world as it is today, and all of us bringing our traditions into one universal holiday, that's actually pretty impressive. That all of us come together on this one day and celebrate all together this one holiday. That all humans around the world share this one day. Uh, whether we call it Christmas, or Hanukkah, or Diwali, or Kwanzaa, or Yule, it all means something very special to each one, each one of us. So now we're going to move on to talking about how this holiday was very much influenced by my favorite author of the Victorian era, and that is, of course, Mr. Charles Dickens. As many people know, because I've written about this before and discussed it before, I am a huge fan of the Dickens Festival that goes on here in San Francisco, and if you have not been to this festival and you are in San Francisco, you must go. This might be their last year here. They are about to lose the building that, or they might potentially lose the building that they're in. So this might be your last chance to go and see it. This festival is absolutely fantastic. Uh, They do a live, uh, full-on play of Scrooge that goes on for three whole days. And it starts with Scrooge getting up on... uh, in the middle of the night and being followed around by the three ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. And you will see Scrooge walking around with the ghosts. You will see Bob Marley in his chains. You will see the ghosts of past, present, and future. You will see Bob Cratchit and the kids. You will see all of the characters from the story and it's absolutely fantastic and wonderful. Also at the fair, there's Alice in Wonderland, the Hatter, uh, the Red Queen, the March Hare, and Oliver Twist, and they do uh, a live uh, Oliver Twist play as well. So it's a lot of fun and a huge celebration of Victorian culture. So if you're into that sort of thing, please go. It's so much fun for you and your kids. And so when we talk about Charles Dickens, um, I really think that people may not be fully aware of the fact that Charles Dickens himself had a lot of experience uh, living poor, he actually did spend a little bit of time in a workhouse. If people aren't really aware of the Victorian area to great extent, I do understand that, but there were certain time periods in the Victorian era in which these things called workhouses existed. A workhouse was a place that you would go if you were uh, completely impoverished, and they would uh, pay you to live there, However, the pay was not free. You had to do uh, extensive labor. Even children as young as five years old 
or forced into work. And this would be working on very heavy machinery. Many children were actually killed, injured, and permanently disabled during this time period. And it actually forced the formation of the Children's Welfare Agency, which later formed Rights for Children and stopped uh, children from working, uh, forming children, uh, children's schools. And the Victorian era changed a lot during this period because they saw what was happening to young people who were in the workhouse. Um, Charles Dickens got very ill there, and um, he wrote many of his novels as he was in and out of the workhouse. In his novel, The Christmas Carol, he talks a lot about how greed affects people. And I think a lot of people miss that aspect of The Christmas Carol, but it is to me a good example of how authors can write about the archetype. And I know that this is something that Sheil really likes in Stephen King novels because he is a huge archetype writer as well. Uh, there are many, many authors that use quote archetypes like the hero, the villain, the, the rogue, and Dickens is a huge archetype user. Uh, the Christmas past, present, and future all mean something, and Scrooge is definitely the archetype for greed. And I think you guys would agree with that. Oh, yeah. definitely embodies Absolutely. greed. He, is, he, is he embodies greed, greed mm -hmm. exceptionally, uh, to perfection, even. And I think Scrooge, and this story in particular, allows Dickens to do something that was very difficult for people who were of his class to do. Dickens was not a wealthy man, so it was very difficult for people of lower class to... Um, make statements about the wealthy because they just were not in a position to do that. You you could not really insult your betters. It was completely frowned upon at that time period and very difficult to do and be taken seriously. But Dickens was able to do, do that through a very interesting method. He used the dead. Now this is very common in Victorian writing. They use ancestors, the dead, and the ghosts to give moral lessons. And there's a reason why they do that, because if you use vehicles to give moral lessons, you're not doing it directly. So you can use the dead to convey messages. You can use the dead to uh, spur on a character to learn something, and it's not a direct insult. And I think that's a kind of interesting way of conveying moral uh, messages through uh, a novel. But my favorite part of A Christmas Carol um, is this one little section, and I think some people may have never seen the, this version of A Christmas Carol, but it is my favorite one. Uh, Sir Patrick Stewart, who many people out there would know from Star Trek, and he's been in a lot of other movies, he was also Professor X, he was actually in a version of A Christmas Carol. And as he played Scrooge, he was with Christmas Present, and they were going to go to his nephew's house to watch them play games. And he goes outside with Christmas presents that's coming to an end. And he, he says, as they're outside, it begins, I'm reading this as an excerpt here, it was a long night, if it were only a long night. But Scrooge had his doubts of this because the Christmas holidays appeared to be condensed into the space of time as they passed together. It was strange, too, that while Scrooge remained unaltered in his outward form, the ghost grew older, clearly older, Scrooge had observed this change, but never spoke of it, until they left a children's twelfth-night party. 
When looking at the spirits as they stood in the open place, he noticed that its hair was gray. Our spirits lie so short, asked Scrooge. My life upon this globe is very brief, replied the, go the ghost. It ends tonight. Tonight, cried Scrooge. Tonight at midnight. Hark, the time is, draws near. The chimes were ringing the last three quarters past eleven at that moment. Forgive me if I am not justified in what I ask, said Scrooge, looking intently at the spirit's robes. But I see something strange, and not belonging to yourself, protruding from your skirts. Is that a foot or a claw? It might be a claw, for the flesh there is upon it, was the spirit's sorrowful reply. Look, there. From the foldings of its robe it brought out two children, wretched, abject, frightful, hideous, and miserable. They knelt down at its feet and clung outside upon its garment. Oh, man, look here, look down, look here, exclaimed the ghost. There were a boy and a girl, yellow, meager, ragged, scowling, wolfish, but prostrate, too, in their humility. Where graceful youths should have filled their features, out and touched them with its finest, precious tints, a stale and shriveled hand like that of age, had pinched and twisted, had filled their features out, and pulled them into shreds, where angels might have had them enthroned, devils lurked and glared out menacing, no change, no degradation, no perversion of humanity in any grade, through all the mysteries of wonderful creation, of monsters half so horrible and dread. Scrooge stared back appalled, having been shown to him in this way. He tried to say that they were fine children, but the works choked back themselves, rather to be parties to a lie of such enormous magnitude. Spirits, are they yours? Scrooge said no more. They are man's, said Spirit, looking down upon them, and they cling to me, appealing from their fathers. This boy is ignorance, and this girl is want. Both beware them both, and all of their degree, but most of all beware of this boy, for on his brow I see that it is written, which is due, and lest the writing be erased, deny it, cry the spirit, stretching out his hand towards the city. Slander those who tell it ye, admit it to your fractious purpose, and make it worse, and abide the end. Have they no refuge or resource, cried Scrooge? Are there no prisons, said the spirit, turning to him to one last time with his own words? Are there no workhouses? The bell struck twelve. Scrooge looked about him for the ghost and saw it not, and the last stroke ceased to vibrate, and he remembered the predictions of old Jacob Marley, and lifted up his eyes, beheld a solemn phantom, draped and hooded, coming like a mist upon the ground towards him. So you can see here that this was my favorite scene in that movie because these two little like grumbly children fall out of the cape of the Christmas present and they look all shriveled and stuff and Patrick Stewart looks at them like what are these things and Christmas present like throws back his words that he had said before like well you said like there are workhouses and there are prisons for children right so why don't you just throw them there and I feel like this was Dickens saying to people, like, this is what you did to me. Why Why is it you cannot see that this is what we've come to? Like, these are children. They're not, 
you know, they are meant to be loved and cared for, not meant to be thrown to work houses. Absolutely. So I, I kind of feel like and, people should uh, in a way read too, that and remember that. It, it also goes like, you know, uh, why does it have to be to this extreme? Why do I have to take this extreme for you to understand this, right? Now look at the extreme. This is yeah, what you're exactly. doing by exactly. being apathetic and sitting back and counting your coins while benevolence and generosity is not in your heart. And it's funny because it, that scene is only in two of the versions of the Christmas Carol. It, um, it was actually included in the Muppets one as well, but I've only seen it twice. And my husband actually had never heard of that scene before, and I brought it up, and he was like, that is really dark and i said oh yeah the whole christmas carol actually is not is is not that bright it's very dark yeah um and i think that's because dickens had this um a lot a lot of hurt because he had to live in the workhouse he knew what that was like he saw death and despair all around him and he wanted the working class people and the wealthy people to understand that like the things that you're that you're to calling us, you know, wretched, poor, oh, you're just layabouts, not doing anything. The, we're children. We, we cannot help the situation that we are in. And really, it was a Christmas Carol that began to change Victorian society when they began reading it. Um, it actually formed a lot of change. So be, because of Dickens, we actually got a better society. Um, and I think it's a really good thing for us to read and remember and to kind of honor that legacy of looking at the way we envision the world around us and remembering that, you know, at, we shouldn't degrade those who have the least because it, it is through our humanity that we share a connection with others. Yeah. And regardless of whether we are rich or poor, giving, um, comfort to those who are in need is vastly important and the, the fact that dickens wrote himself into the book as bob cratchit i mean it, it it absolutely drives that point home that he was in the thick of things and knew exactly how it felt mm -hmm. um, bob cratchit is a written personification of himself he was a man who had a wife who was pregnant with her fifth he worked in the workhouses he worked himself to the bone just to try and make ends meet. He was literally hand-to-mouth, uh, paycheck to paycheck, like, if you will, for today's society, for use of a term. Uh, he was working poor. He was food poor. His children were food poor and thing poor. So it, it's yeah, the it pure personification of the rich and the poor caste, or the classes of rich and poor, and no. I think it's an interesting reminder like too, of, you know, right now. of generosity at this time of year, where it's you know, it, more so than any other time of year. This time of year, people are really called on to be generous, to be, you know, it, giving as far as you know charities and people less fortunate. You know, this time of year, that's really a bigger deal and I think that's part of it is because you know every single year we watch Scrooge and it reminds us that you know this is what happens when Reed takes over yeah 
it's that yearly reminder of benevolence and generosity is is key to keeping a connection between each and every human being Mm -hmm. it's not a bad thing to do but as dickens reminds us when we see the children in christmas presents robe that the boy is ignorant and to not wipe that name from his brow it gives us doom so that I think he, what he's saying is, if you do not remember, if you plead ignorance the other times of the year that he does not exist, right? That these children don't exist. That they there is no need except for right now. You're just repeating the the cycle mm-hmm. that is continuing. So I I think it's really important for people out there like to. To try to remember that it's not just this one time of year. Like, this time of year, we're really, in a way, guilted into it. Because yeah. we have all these reminders. Like, there, there's Scrooge. There's the Grinch. The, the pressure of Christmas is so hard on people that it, like, it makes you feel, like, guilty that you're buying things and then guilty that you're not giving enough. But actually, if you spread it, if you spread out your giving throughout the year, it wouldn't feel as burdensome as doing it one time a year right. than doing it throughout the year. And you don't have to give, like, every single penny you have. Like, like Sheila just said, like, you can go around giving little things. You bake cookies at your house and go give it to somebody. Like, it doesn't take much to give. Like, everybody at their house has old blankets that they don't use. Go around, drive around. Or even people that are on the street and give them blankets. Even give your time, you know, go volunteer volunteer somewhere and, yeah. Yeah, there's soup kitchens. There's there's, there's sitting at someone's bedside when they're ill during the holidays, or even just exactly. some time during the year. Yeah, go to an old folks' home who may not have families that, you know, visit them anymore. It it means the world to people to just have people in their life, and so you know, just think about outside the box thinking and do something different. You know, have a different experience. I think that's what kind of like the holidays remind us to do but it's something we should try to do all year round it's just put yourself out there and kind of remind yourself of what it feels like to be in a world in which you carry that spirit all year round like be be the ghost of christmas present you know run around the world spreading joy and happiness and giving to everyone and and don't let that spirit kind of like be snuffed out (laughs) by like being a curmudgeon as i say (laughs) um you know i think that's how dickens kind of influenced you know the world that we kind of see around us and i think writers today can kind of harken back and look on the his style of writing and the way he wrote and i definitely think like if somebody really wanted to they could totally modernize the way the christmas carol was written and put it into language that would be more um modernized well i mean look at the movie scrooged was it uh bill murray yeah that's like one of my favorite versions of it just because it's you know it is modern and it does take you know the modern situation and be like okay look this is why this is bad you know you laid some guy off right before christmas you know you gave your in-laws crappy presents that you didn't even think about you know stuff like that yeah, exactly. So I think we kind of touched on two topics there, the meaning of Dick, or the influence of Dickens, and really what Scrooge means. And it's funny, because I, um, in my love for Edgar Allan Poe, I actually found out that Poe was influenced by Dickens, too, and he wrote four letters in a Christmas book. So that was a really weird connection. I was hmm. like, 
poet in Christmas doesn't seem to Yeah, he doesn't, doesn't seem like the Christmassy kind of guy. <laughs> yeah, but apparently there was four um, books written around Christmas time, and he was inspired by a nurse that uh, helped care for his wife, and he wrote letters um, about Christmas. They're, they're a little bit odd, um, but they're all available at the Poe Museum's website, which we have links for. And um, they're kind of interesting if anybody wants to take a look at, like, how he was influenced by uh, other writers. Uh, there's definitely some Dickensy type influence in there. He talks about gift-giving. Um, but it's interesting to kind of even see someone as macabre as Poe still kind of have, like, a little bit of spark of Christmas spirit in there. So, I mean, it kind of <laughs> gives you kind of hope that <laughs> yeah. even cur- even curmudgeons can be reached. <laughs> like, well, I mean, a, a Poe and Dickens yeah. were actually best friends. That's why they're so influenced. He's so influenced for, from him. I, uh, and what weird the Raven, <laughs> his yeah. famous poem, was inspired by Charles Dickinson's own pet Raven Grip. They were that close of friends, so I'm mm. not surprised that he was influenced. Yeah, I just thought it was very strange that he would be inspired to write. Like it just felt like a genre that he wouldn't really be into. But yeah, he did. So I thought that was kind of <laughs> really interesting. And and other writers too were very uh, inspired by him. You'll see a lot in like the Jane Austen novels where the Christmas setup is totally like right out of the Christmas like Dickens novels. Like it's totally Victorian Christmas exploded. Um, and I think every Victorian writer pretty much had exactly like you could probably stamp the perfect Victorian Christmas in every single one of their novels and it wouldn't change. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they had they had the tree, they had the plum pudding, they had the, <laughs> like it was all the same. Uh, and and that's because that was tradition and that's what they had and speaking uh, and on so traditions of cool. food as such um if you do like those old school traditional christmas foods if you jump on youtube and you go find mrs crockenby from uh, oddly lane house oh she does some really good recipes on there um, it's an old school, traditional Victorian style um, YouTube channel for oddly oh, very cool. And some of the Christmas meals that she shows you how to do, like she's playing the part. This is an actress playing the part of Mrs. Crockenby, who was a real Victorian house servant, a head cook in um, Baybrook family's household. Oh, I've seen this. Yeah, she's yes. fantastic. She is fantastic, yes. and the food looks to die for, even though, you know, it's from way back when, she does, Victorian like, she's done style, a, a and their turkey, particular channel, um, their favorite Christmas happens pudding. to be. She's um, done all kinds of things. Uh, very, very interesting. Um, very cool lady. So we're going to keep going here, because I believe we just temporarily lost... She'll, but she'll Uh-oh. come back. Okay, so <laughs> we're going to just keep going, and we're going to discuss the next topic, which is the moral stories of uh, Victorian Christmases and how they kind of play a factor in things. So one of the things I noticed when doing research on this theme that we're having this month is that moral stories play a big role in the Victorian Christmas. It, it seems to be really important to convey moral stories. Like you have the ones in Scrooge and um, 
you know, there's ones like the Little Less Match Girl that I'm about to read. And I think that it's very, very common to have um, moral stories kind of like play out uh, uh, throughout the Christmas season. And I think authors today can kind of take a page out of their books um, as to, you know, how to kind of like roll in morals into their tales. So let's just start with reading The Littlest Match Girl to kind of be inspired by this. And this is written by Hans Christian Andersen, so it's bound to have a little bit of Christian influence. It was terribly cold and nearly dark on the last evening of the old year, and the snow was falling fast. In the cold and the darkness, a poor little girl with bare head and naked feet roamed through the streets. It is true that she had on a pair of slippers when she left home, but they were not of much use. They were very large, so large indeed, that they had belonged to her mother, and the poor little creature had lost them in running across the street to avoid two carriages that were rolling along at a terrible rate. One of the slippers she could not find, and the boy seized upon the other and ran away with it, saying that he could use it as a cradle when he had children of his own. So the little girl went on with her naked feet, which were quite red and blue with the cold. In an old apron she carried a number of matches and, a, and had a bundle of them in her hand. No one had bought anything of her the whole day, nor had anyone given her a penny. Shivering with cold and hunger, she crept along, poor little child. She looked the picture of misery. The snowflakes fell on her long, bare hair, which hung in curls upon her shoulder, but she regarded them not. Lights were shining from every window. There was a savory smell of roast goose, for it was New Year's Eve. Yes, she remembered that. In a corner between two houses, one of which projected beyond the other, she sank down and huddled herself together. She had drawn her little feet under her, but could not keep off the cold. And she dared not go home, for she had sold no matches, and could not take home even a penny of money. Her father would certainly beat her, besides, it was almost as cold as home as here, for they had only the roof to cover them. Though with the wind howled, although the largest hole had been stopped up with straw and rags, her little hands were almost frozen with cold. Ah, perhaps burning a match might do some good if she could draw it from the bundle and strike it against the wall, just to warm her fingers. She drew out one, a scratch, how it sputtered as it burnt. It gave a warm, bright light like a little candle. As she held her hand over it, it was a wonderful light. It seemed to the little girl that she was sitting by a large iron stove with polished brass feet and a brass ornament. How the fire burned and seemed so beautifully warm that the child stretched out her feet as if to warm them, when, lo, the flame of the match went out, the stove vanished, and she had only the remains of the half-burnt match in her hand. She rubbed another match on the wall. It burst into flame, and where its light fell upon the wall, it became as a transparent as a veil, and she could see into the room. The table was covered with a snowy white tablecloth, on which stood a splendid dinner service, and a steaming roast goose, stuffed with apples and dried plums. And what was still more wonderful, the goose jumped up from the dish and waddled across the floor with a knife and fork in its breast to the little girl. Then the match went out, and there nothing remained but the thick, damp, cold wall before her. 
She alighted in the other branch, and then she found herself sitting under a beautiful Christmas tree. It was much larger and more beautifully decorated than the one that she had seen through the glass door at the rich merchant's. Thousands of tapers were burning on the green branches, and colored pictures, like those she had seen in the show windows, looked down upon it all. The little one stretched out her hand towards them, and the match went out. The Christmas lights rose higher and higher, till they looked to her like stars in the sky. Then she saw a star fall, leaving behind its bright streak of fire. Someone is dying, thought the little girl, for her old grandmother, the only one she had ever loved her, was now dead had told her that when a star falls, a soul was going up to heaven. She rubbed again the match on the wall, and the light shone around her, and in the brightness stood her old grandmother, clear and shining, yet mild and loving in her appearance. Grandmother, cried the little one, oh, take me with you. I know you will go away when the match burns out. You will vanish like the warm stove, the roast goose, the large and glorious Christmas tree. And she made haste to the light, the whole bundle of matches, for she wished to keep her grandmother there. And the matches glowed with a light that was brighter than the noonday, and her grandmother never appeared so large or so beautiful. She took the little girl in her arms, and they both flew upwards in the brightness and joy far beyond the earth, where there was neither cold, nor hunger, nor pain, for they were in heaven. And in the dawn of the morning, there they, the little poor one, with pale cheeks and smiling mouth, leaning against the wall. She had been frozen to death on the last evening of the year, and the new year's sun rose and shone upon the little corpse. The little child sat in the stiffness of death, holding the matches in her hand, one bundle of which was burnt. She tried to warm herself, said some. No one imagined what beautiful things she had seen, nor into what glory she had entered with her grandmother on New Year's Day. This was written in 1846, and that was The Littlest Match Girl by Hans Christian Andersen. As you can see, again, another moral-type tale, same along the lines of Dickens, telling us what happens to poor little children in this era. Again, it was very common during the Victorian era for children to be sent out to sell uh, items um, in the very cold streets of England. Uh, during that time period, if you were poor, you didn't have anything, uh, not even shoes. And obviously in this day and age, you were allowed to beat your children. And uh, many children were beaten and often starved. And this children was, child was obviously left out to freeze and die, which is very sad. But this was a very common story told to children around this time of year. And um, oftentimes... Uh, According to the research I did around Victorian uh, Christmas traditions, uh, a box of matches would actually be left outside of homes in honor of the littlest match girl, which I think is kind of sweet. And so when you light candles in your home, kind of remember the, that not every child had it so good as to be in, inside in a nice warm home. So it's kind of a a sad story to read, but I think it reflects on why moral stories are important and reminding us what's, you know, what really matters in life is to give to those who are in need and, you know, giving warmth and, and um, a home is very important. Yeah. Yeah. And 
you know, again, you 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 see these themes a lot, even in like modern Christmas movies, where you know it, it, there's always that moral of, you know, someone who doesn't have, and you know, versus the people that do, and and how those people react to those in need. So you you know, yeah, it's yeah. definitely been a theme that's been carried over into modern storytelling. Yeah, Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street, or mm-hmm. um. What was the one where, uh, oh, it's a wonderful life. Mm-hmm. And, you know where you have, um, you know, a little bit of morals kind of woven in, and I, I think it's okay to do that. Like a lot of people, mis, um, have the misconception that we as heathens and pagans don't have any morals or something like that. That morals only exist in certain religious groups, and that's just simply not true. Mm-hmm. Um, heathens and pagans have extensive morals, uh, actually one of the highest moral classes of people I've ever hung out with. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, we have, like, a lot of discipline and a lot of rules for our children and the way we, you know, work and practice it as human beings. But one of the uh, the ways we convey morals to our children is through stories. And a lot of our mythology and the stories that we tell our children are really are very, very particular on morals. Yeah, on especially generosity. Yeah, exactly. Generosity being, like, number one. Like, you always give. um, Giving is extremely important as heathen. Like, you don't give to the point of putting yourself in poverty. But, you know, being miserly was considered, you know, just horrendous. It was like, why? Why would you keep all those resources for yourself when you know there's people who need those? So it was like, if you have extra, you give, you know? And I think Shield, too, like, she's, uh, we have her back again. I think that you, uh, as a Celtic shaman, uh, also have, like, hospitality, giving, being extremely important as well. Absolutely. Um, for me, uh, my views are, of course, on the mindset that benevolence, uh, politeness, integrity, accountability, transparency. Uh, you're taught as a Celtic shaman and a druid to help people in their mindset and how they believe. So it's not so much that, you know, I only learn about my own belief systems. I have to learn about everyone's to speak mm-hmm. to them in the words that they understand. So self-sacrifice is a huge one in my belief system. Yes, I think that that, you know, for us, writing the the styles that the three of us write, those morals are kind of easy for us to discuss. I I think that everyone has their own moral compass or things that they can discuss, and no matter whether you believe in things or don't, even atheists have morals. Everybody has morals, whether they be secular morals, religious morals, personal morals, wherever you draw your morals from. It's, it's easy to incorporate morals into stories because all you have to do is lay the groundwork for like conveying that principle through either dialogue and or through a story or through an event. So you can convey it through uh, like a tragedy, like the Little West Match Girl, through something a little bit more tragedy slash positive like Scrooge or, you know, even something like the Grinch where it's like positive and slash, you know. Um, kind of quirky and happy. These are all moral lessons, but you know, conveyed in a fun sort of upbeat way. And I, I think no matter what you do, 
um, moral lessons are good and they're great for kids to have because we want our children to be good citizens uh, in general, <laughs> good global citizens, good people. You, you don't want your children running around being horrendous humans. Right. So giving them a good moral compass and knowing what is right and wrong is extremely important. So I let's think give it's... And then giving them the opportunity too to figure out what their moral compass is yeah. for them as well. Because for all I know, one of my kids could take benevolence and respect and run with it way further. I think than it's what important for adults as well because, you know, a lot of adults are, you know, relearning some pretty, you know, negative patterns that they may have grown up with. And now they're kind of like, oh, hey, that's not a good way to live, you know. So I think even the moral stories are good for the adults because it helps them break some of those cycles that they may be stuck in. Yeah, and I don't want to be like a naggy, do telly person. Like, I don't like telling people what to do. But for me as well, I also think of like, do what you preach. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's not like a do as I say, not as I do situation. It's a do as I say because I do. Yeah. And like, I, with my daughter, I don't ask her to do anything I will not do. Like, I 100% will do exactly what I ask her to. Huh. And I've never once ever showed her that I will not be generous or I will not be truthful or I will not. She knows that she can come to me and ask me things and I will be honest. And that level of trust goes a long way mm -hmm. because if you, if you cannot. Yeah. We've taken that, that sa exact same stance in our household too, with our children. Um, I'm the crazy <laughs> one with the most children out of the three of us. So there's five of them in my house. Well, four technically one moved out. One's about to move out, but we've taken that same stance. Both my husband and I as parents is you tell the truth to your children age appropriate. Of course, I wouldn't tell a three-year-old, oh, mm -hmm. I can't afford that because I don't have any money. I would tell an 18-year-old, well, I can't afford that because right now we're financially, we have responsibilities. Um, always tell the truth because if you don't tell your children the truth, then who are they right. supposed to trust first and foremost as a base set of people to trust? Their parents should be that soft landing, that truthful foundation that they can build themselves off of if i can't teach them through action mm -hmm. then what what am i going to mm -hmm. teach them because they they learn through you and so if they see you treating someone out there like hate is learned disrespect is learned um abuse is learned and so children learn what they think and if they see hate they will hate and if they see abuse, they will abuse. Mm -hmm. They don't just learn this in a vacuum. And so it's important as a parent to be the model that you want your child to be. There are no good models out there. You have to be that. It's the hardest thing to be sometimes. I wish there was like a, you know, I could build a perfect robotic model for them to right. model that's not me. You know, like, I would like a break. <laughs> I, I'm I'm lesser than you. I'm asking for right. Yeah, I just uh, want to yeah. Like manual. I think we all do, and uh, it, we're not perfect by any means. But 
you try every day to just show them that you're human, that you make mistakes, but you try to show them that you're also compassionate, that you forgive, that you show love and that you share with others. And I've tried to make sure that I do that no matter what or how difficult it is in my day. I try to show her that that generosity can be spread no matter who it is, no matter what it is, because I do believe that love and compassion and caring goes a lot farther in life. So that, that's just, you know, I do think that that Absolutely. matters. And that's where yeah. moral stories play a huge part in our lives. And I do think that continuing to tell them uh, stories around that nature, you know, are hugely important. So no matter what moral stories you tell your children, know that you're doing the right thing. Just remember that it's important to make sure that you're hitting home that they have the responsibility for that moral and that responsibility doesn't lie outside of themselves. So the moral is theirs to hold. It's not like, you know, they're the ones that have to be good. It's it's not like be good or else. <laughs> it's that you should just be good. And stories and really, you, really are a great teaching tool for just about everything because it's an objective look at a situation or an objective view of, you know, a behavior. So it makes it easier for people to ask questions and put themselves in that character's position and think, well, what would I do? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it really is. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a great teaching tool for, for children and for adults. And if they're in that age of because and why it's okay to say, I don't know. Yeah. Like, Absolutely. It's okay to say, I don't know. Another one really good teaching tool is the words, I'm sorry, and the actions that go behind it. And no matter whether you're an adult or, or a child, that the, the words, I'm sorry, and that's actually in holiday scenes, even the movies, the books, yeah. everything is second chances and I'm sorry and acting on that. And to reiterate your point, Sarah, for there's morals in almost every book. Does anyone remember? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, oh man. blast from my childhood past those books. My parents had the whole Yes, yeah, I remember those. those. Good, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk about books or Mr. Mm-hmm. Grumpy or Miss Happy Sunshine and, you know, where they were these round yep. little pre-emoticon characters. Uh, that, that's just to reiterate your point in that all books have a moral code or mm-hmm. tool or teaching tool and don't be afraid to role reverse too like ask them how if your child starts asking like well why should i do that or why why or, or you know or start saying like or if your only answer is because 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 like put them in the reverse like how would you feel if someone called you a name you know how would you feel if someone took your toy how would you feel because they will they know what that or do it to them, like not mean, right? But go up to them and say, well, how'd you feel if I took this away from you like that? How does that feel? It doesn't feel good to have somebody take something from you. Like that wouldn't be nice, right? If mommy took your cookie, it's not nice. Mm -hmm. So we don't do that. Like, here's your cookie back. You show them that like, they wouldn't like it if you took something from them. Right. And I don't mean to do that in a mean way. I'm not saying grab it from them. I'm saying in a very nice, respectful way, you remove it from their plate. It is a huge lesson, and they will take it personally because 
young children especially do not like you touching their food. No. <laughs> and if you right. I don't like you, nobody if touching start, my food. If you're in a conversation one time and they're like, "Well, why well, why should I be nice to this person or whatever?" Then you could say, "Well, how would you like it if I just took your fork?" And if they're like, "What do you mean?" and you just take it from them at the dinner table, huh? I'm just going to take your fork. And then they're going to look at you and be like, "Well, how am I going to eat my dinner?" Right. So why would you take so and so from somebody? Mm-hmm. You don't take something from someone else because that doesn't make them feel very why? good. And trust me, you're gonna have a lot of times as a parent where the kids like, "So what? What are you gonna do?" You're right. Well, what? I want to see with my hand. <laughs> yeah, like you're gonna get. Uh, we have all been there, but like there are ways to get through to your kids, and eventually you get to a point where they're just like, "I see what you mean," because I don't want to be treated like that. I don't want to be treated bad. Because nobody wants to be treated, like, <laughs> badly. So I think moral stories are a really good tool and just one of the tools in the toolbox that you can use. And a lot of morals are woven into a lot of different stories. So you don't have to use, like, specific holiday ones, but there's, like, a lot of books out there that have really good morals, like, woven into them that give them good concepts of, like, friendship, togetherness, you know, working together as a team, uh, being honest, trustworthy, it's all out there. You just look for anything under the scholastics um, catalog under like morals and friendship. You'll find like a huge plethora of novels. And if anybody is looking for something around that concept, uh, next year we have the book More You Felt coming up, which we'll discuss later because we're not doing ads during these podcasts anymore. But I just had to mention that one because we were talking about moral stories. So, um, <laughs> So we're just going to touch on a little bit of um, one kind of downside to the holidays is like how to avoid all this mass consumerism because I am so tired of the fact that like since October 1st, I've seen like Christmas decorations going up and I was like, what in the doodle? (laughs) I felt like it was way too soon. So how as moms like you know and I know, how can we avoid like feeling the pressure of like we have to buy all this stuff like. How do you avoid feeling like you're not buying enough stuff? I don't have that problem because I'm a little bit more of a mean parent. Where it's like, no, I'm not <laughs> spending that much. But my husband came from a, a fairly large family uh, that ho- celebrated the holidays uh, among different households all in the same day. So for him, it's a, well... I want them to have enough to open, right? I want them to have a good Christmas, and to him that means quantity at times. And it bothers him if we can't, right? For me, it's quality. Not to say that for him it's not quality either, it's just for him that's what he grew up with, that was his normal. For me, it was we were only two girls. And we were kind of to ourselves to the same household. And then maybe the next day we'd go meet up with the rest of the family. So we had very, very different upbringings for that. Um, so for consumerism, for him, he wants to spend, 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 spend. And then I'm looking at his bank account going, no, 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 no. And and having five kids already, it's, it's well, we were nuts to have five kids oh, right. that's expensive in the first place regardless of christmas right so for me, us it is a struggle because we have two different viewpoints and we have to balance that and for most part most years we do last year i spent like a 
balloon. It was like water through my fingers, but I had the money to do it last year. And occasionally we do do it that way, where we just spend and don't not even check on what we're spending. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> YOLO! <laughs> yes, we've had a few of those. I think last year's blow at Christmas was to the oh tune my of gosh. at least eight grand. The one before that was five, about ten years prior. So, But we have, only one we have. My husband and I tend to get caught up in that consumerism mindset where, you know, it's quantity. There has to be a certain amount of presence under the tree and there has, you know, it's, um, so it, 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 it really is a struggle every year because it's like, you know, you don't want to go broke trying to put all those presents under the tree, but at the same time, it's like, you know, you still want your kid to have a lot to open. So it, it is a bit of a struggle for us. Yeah. I, in a I, I'm very late to the game. Like I mentioned earlier, I did not grow up with the holidays at all. I only came to the holidays around 21, 22. And really only in my marriage and having a child was Christmas like sort of a mm-hmm. thing. Uh, so we didn't really uh, have much in terms of income until the later part of our marriage. So for us, Christmas has always been kind of small. Uh, occasionally we splurged and got something like really big for her but we always kept our gifts really small and I never really cared about like getting anything I I, I have my family that's like I don't really need stuff and I, I've never really been a stuff person or really liked getting gifts uh, my sister and I have like the same problem of like when we were little if even if we were given gifts on non-holiday times everybody would sit around you and be like oh my god do you like it do you really like it like (laughs) you felt intense pressure to show emotion so today like if you hand me a gift I get like super anxious like I because if I don't like it I don't know what to say so I'm I like fake emotions because I'm like yeah it's great oh my god I don't know what to do (laughs) it still goes through my head like all like 700 people staring at you like oh my god do you like it like I got into all this trouble and everybody's like pressuring you before you even open it to say something and it was just nuts so it made you feel like you had to love it no matter what mm-hmm. and and if you opened it and you were like it's my little pony and you're like great and you're 20 and like what are you supposed to say like uh, yay like <laughs> um and so for me like I try to keep it controlled but it is hard like and I find the going to the stores and stuff is a lot of pressure and I don't like all the secret Santa stuff that comes from the schools yeah I, I hate that stuff I'm sorry I just I really don't like it like I like the giving tree stuff and I, I don't mind doing things like that but I don't like the holiday party stuff because I just feel like I don't know a lot of the families at the schools I don't know a lot of these kids so I feel like I don't know what to buy uh, and you're standing there, and you're like, well, how much do I spend? And, like, it's some kid I don't know. <laughs> and, and you just, like, struggle with, like, where do I go to find, like, a present for someone I don't even know who they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you don't want to just get gift cards because then you're looked at, like, the gift card person. And, like, everybody knows what that's like because uh, you're now just, like, the gift card mom. And, like. Nobody likes that person for some reason. <laughs> Even though it's like gift cards are really cool. I don't understand what the right. problem is. But um everyone looks at you like you're kinda of cheap for just getting a gift card. And it's like, yeah, but what else do you I, 
I don't know. I just get like all flustered with like what to buy people. And I find sometimes my daughter's list looks like, you know, a lookbook on like Pinterest. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. what is all this stuff? Like, oh, and you want a flamethrower? Like, what? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I want a holiday house in Malibu <laughs> and a Lamborghini. And I'm like, uh huh. And uh, <laughs> so, like, this year I'm really excited to like not be here and not have to worry about a single present like at all uh i would much prefer just going on holidays for every single christmas over staying here but uh the way i try to avoid the consumerism thing is i put a limit on everyone i'm like you can spend like this much each and that's it like (laughs) that's it Uh, and we try to stay like in that budget that's that's how I try to avoid it. We see. I grew up in like a household where like my mom was not materialistic at all. So every gift that she would ask for for Christmas, for Mother's Day, it all had to serve a purpose. It had to be useful. I remember one year for Christmas, she asked for a new blender and slippers and I was like really mom a a blender and some slippers but that was like her dream present because she needed a new blender and she needed new slippers so that kind of carries over into you know when my husband asked me what I want I'm like well um I need some new oven mitts (laughs) you know it's like it's very like what can I use versus you know the little knickknacks that I have no use for I am the same way like I will ask for things I need I don't yeah I I mean I love little like doodads or weird things Mm. but you get to a point in your house where it just becomes stuff that you have to dust yeah it's like where do I put it (laughs) yeah where do you put it and then like you might as well then ask for Christmas one year like well now I need a shelf right for all this stuff (laughs) For all the little doodads that you got me over the years, I need a shelf. Um, but yeah, I'm the same way. Like, my husband is always making comments, and it's not just Christmas; it's my birthday or Mother's Day. It's like you're a girl with a penis. How the hell am I supposed to get these things? I don't even know what to get you. You've got everything you want, and you're so difficult to get gifts for. And I'm like, I'm yep. easy. Just get me books. Yeah, exactly. Like books yeah, and notebooks. This year, I said, like, if you was to get me, like, for my birthday, I asked for, I wanted the Tasty Cookbook and a new baking sheet. And they both looked at me like, really? Mm-hmm. Like, you want a baking sheet? Like, you yeah, have two heads? Like, yeah, I want a baking sheet, and I wanted the cookbook. So they got me the cookbook, which, by the way, is a really good cookbook. I have to, we didn't publish it, but, I mean, I, it's a really awesome cookbook for anybody that, likes to cook really unusual things it's uh, uh from tasty like the youtube channel and they have a facebook page and they have like all kinds of stuff that they do on there but um <clears throat> amazing recipe is our favorite so far is the hawaiian hash it's like potatoes and pineapple and stuff with egg on top it's so good anyway so um we've been using that a lot but like i'll ask for stuff like that like cookbooks or stuff for the kitchen so like i I guess our, like for me and him, it's not as bad. It's when you get to the kids that, it, like, you kind of go overboard on, like, 
okay, we had 75 last year. <laughs> like, yeah. And then you have to go, like, plus four. <laughs> like, you know, and, and you feel like you're always, like, one-upping yourself. And sometimes then it becomes this issue of, like, every once in a while you go through spring cleaning and you open a cupboard and then you find all these bags from Christmas that they didn't even open. Mm-hmm. And you're, like, all this stuff. And you're, like, did you not want this? Like, why didn't you even open this stuff? And, you, and they're, like, eh. Like, it was nice, but, <laughs> you know, so I think <clears throat> parents sometimes, I think, buy this for us, but not necessarily for them. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, it is hard to stay away from that consumerism issue. I, I think all of us struggle with, like, you want to spoil them, but you don't want to go overboard. And, you know, it's hard to sometimes, like, hone in on what they really want over what they really might need. But you don't want to, like, just get them socks. Yeah. You know, like, it. It's hard. <laughs> and especially, you know, um, so, social... Can't they just like socks? Yeah. Just, you know, stocking stuffer socks are so much cheaper. But you know what wouldn't hurt on this time of year? It's grabbing one of our book crates. Because if you don't know what to get somebody, or you're looking for a really cool gift to shove under the tree, that would be a good option. Oh, yeah. So now moving on to um, <clears throat> some lighthearted conversation as we're getting close to the full huge episode for this uh, podcast is talking about our favorite holiday cartoons. What's your favorite holiday cartoon? Shield, go. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, sure. The pressure. Um, I'm definitely a night before Christmas Mm -hmm. kind of girl because I'm a horror. I love my horror. But my kids tend to, they really like elf. It's slapstick, it's Will Ferrell, and it, I admit it is, at times, absolutely hilarious, especially the maple syrup scene. It's like, wow, <laughs> really? And Sarah, what's your favorite? Oh, pretty much the same. We're, we're a nightmare before Christmas. Uh, definitely watch that every year. Um, we watch Elf every year. Krampus, of course. Um yeah, that's really about it, I think. I'd say mine is The Grinch, um, but I also like, because my husband introduced it to me, and it is the weirdest cartoon in the world, is Rudolph. Oh, yeah. Because the little elf in there, he was like, I want to be a dentist. It's like the weirdest, I, I, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> I love stop. that one. Who thought up that creep factor? <laughs> Who, who really thought up that oh. freak, freaky little creep factor? It was weird. Movie? Like, that's from, like, the 70s. And, and the stop motion animation? Like, uh, I'm just, but, like, I mean, my husband grew up with this stuff, and he was like, oh my goodness, you have to watch yeah. this, like, Rudolph cartoon. It's absolutely. I used to have the soundtrack, like a, like a record, you know? We'd play it oh every God. single Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> so I like that, and I like. Uh, and the sound oh, of his glowing nose. <laughs> wow. Like the wow. end. Like, um... <laughs> and I like uh, all the Santa Claus movies. Uh, and the um, the Guardians. I really like that movie. It's a good movie. Uh, the one with Jack Frost and the... Um... Yes, my children actually like that one too. And I do catch them watching it <laughs> oh, yeah, in the off season. Where, because I believe it's still on Netflix on the Canadian side. And I'll catch them watching that one even in the middle of yeah, July. Yeah, and I like uh, I like the old school ones like you know Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street and uh, It's a Wonderful Life. I like those a lot. Yeah, Home Alone. Home oh Alone. yeah, Home Alone. It's pretty funny. 
And we always watch The Nightmare Before Christmas because that's cool too. So we're now going to read a little excerpt from The Grinch, of course, because why not? It's a cool little thing. So as you all know, The Grinch is a, a story about a, a little who who was lost and who hated Christmas and uh, tried to steal it from the who's. So we're reading the very last part of the story where the little who's are waking up. And it says, 10,000 feet up, up the side of Mount Crumpet, he rode with his load to the tip top to dump it. Hoo hoo to the who's, he was Grinch and humming. They'll find out now that no Christmas is coming. They're just waking up. I know what they'll do. Their mouths will help hang open a minute or two. Then the who's down the freeway will all cry, hoo hoo. That's a new noise, grinned the Grinch. They simply must hear. He paused, and the Grinch put a hand to his ear. And he did hear a sound rising over the snow. It started in white, then it started to grow. But the sound wasn't sad, why the sound sounded glad. Every who down the freeway was home and small, was singing without any presence at all. He hadn't stopped Christmas from coming, it came. Somehow or other it came just the same. And the Grinch with his Grinch feet ice cold in the snow stood puzzling and puzzling, how could it be so? It came without ribbons, it came without tags, it came without packages, pockets, or bags. He puzzled and puzzled till the puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't thought about before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, needs a little bit more. And then what happens then? Well, in Whoville, they say, the Grinch's small part grew to the size of that day. And now to finally wrap it up, ladies, we're going to wrap it up with a reading of a visit from St. Nicholas. We want to thank everybody this year for all the support they've been giving the three little sisters. We have been really overwhelmed with the amount of likes, shares, and support that all of our authors and fans have been giving us of all the readership that we have been getting and the comments. We are looking forward to the new year where we're bringing a lot more stories out to you. There's going to be a lot of books coming out next year. We're changing a little bit of the format of the way we're going to be releasing books, and we'll be putting an announcement out in January of what changes we're going to be making. It's not big overhaul changes. We're just slowing down a little bit of how often books are being released because we need to. Um, we're dealing with a lot <laughs> coming out uh, in the next uh, two years so we need to slow our roll just a little bit so we don't get overwhelmed so i think sarah and Sheila would like to say thanks to all of our team and uh really thanks for all the hard work that they put in every day of the year and making our publishing house a success and we really hope and look forward to next year well this publishing house is gonna kick butt right ladies oh yeah Oh, definitely. And I am so proud of our team, whether it's layout, editing, uh, reviews, they have worked their heinies off this year. And oh, yeah. Really it's been it's been a real pleasure working with everybody and just seeing like how hard everybody has really been working to pull this thing off. It's great. And don't oh, forget yeah. our authors, too. They've worked pretty hard, too, by writing all that, those words. I mean, between all our authors, I think we've got uh, at least 2 million, 3 million mm -hmm. words written between all of us. Yeah, we just I, are really overwhelmed with the amount of work and support. And really, thank you to everyone. I'm sure I'm forgetting someone. But I really want to send a special shout-out, too, to um, 
Patsy, she's our illustrator working right now. Maureen Fowl, she has been blowing us away with her beautiful art. I can't even express how much we appreciate all the wonderful work she's been doing, the outpouring support she's been giving us, and her feedback has been fantastic, and we can't be more excited to have her uh, doing the art for this book. It means the world to us to have artists that really put their heart and soul into uh, our manuscripts like that. And so we really can't thank you enough for all that you're doing. Um, I think that's everyone that we have to say. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure we're forgetting someone. Like, really, like, thank you so much, Samantha and Christina. You're doing such a great job, and you keep up the good hard work. You're doing great. Uh, so with that, we're going to uh, read uh, a visit from St. Nicholas and then end off the podcast, and we will see you guys in January with our new themes for uh, 2020. "'Twas the night before Christmas, when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, in hopes that St. Nicholas would soon be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds, with visions of sugar plums danced in their heads, and Mama in her kerchief and I in my cap had just settled our brains for a long winter's nap. When out on the lawn there arose such a clatter, I sprang from my bed to see what was the matter. Away to the window I flew like a flash, tore open the shutters and threw up the sash. The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave a luster of midday to objects below, when what to my wondering eyes did appear but a miniature sleigh and eight tawny reindeer. With an old little driver so lively and quick, I knew in a moment he must be St. Nick. More rapid than eagles, his horses they came, he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now Dancer, now Dancer, now Prancer, now Vixen, on Comet, on Cupid, on Donner and Blitzen, to the top of the porch, to the top of the wall, now dash away, dash away, dash away all. As leaves that before the wild hurricane fly, when they meet with an obstacle mount to the sky, so up to the housetops the coursers they fly, with the sleigh full of toys, and St. Nicholas too, and then in a twinkling I heard on the roof, the prancing and pawing of each little hoof. As I drew in my head and was turning around, down the chimney St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes how they twinkled, his dimples how merry. His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard on his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head Soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work, and filled all the stockings, then turned with a jerk. And laying his fingers aside with his nose, and giving a nod, up the chimney he rose. He sprang to his sleigh, to his team gave a whistle, and away they all flew, like the down of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim, ere he drove out of sight, Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good night. And we wish you all a happy holidays, happy Yule, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, uh, which one am I forgetting? Diwali, Yule, 
and check us all out what's coming next year at the www.the3 that's the number three little sisters.com we will see you all in 2020